in the United States, I feel like there's always a campaign. Well, that's true. That's true. Because the campaign is, so if your term is four years, your campaign is is two years. And Trump has now made it into a a rock concert. So like you got to have a rally for the whole time. So he's made your campaign the same length as your term. Yeah, I'm not sure he's ever stopped campaigning. No. He I, went, think, yeah. I think even a few weeks after he was elected, he was still doing rallies. I don't think there's been a, a prolonged period where he stopped the rallies. Every time I'm like walking in the grocery store, I see a CNN on the TV. It's him, a huge backdrop of people and a hall full of people. I mean, he's still having huge rallies. I don't think he ever stopped campaigning. And I don't know if that is a, a thing that is because of Trump or if it's because of a culture shift or if it's because of social media or, you know, the fact that everyone has four second attention spans. I, like I now, I, I don't know what it is, but it's different. That's I think for it could sure. be all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> I think it could be all of the above. Yeah, so it's different. Today we have Warren White Knight. Warren is a litigator at Bergeron Clifford. He is the president of the Frontenac Law Association. He is a professor at the Queen's University Faculty of Law. And he's here with me today, Warren. Thanks for taking some time out. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, Warren, let's start with the president, your presidency. We were talking about uh, elections and politics yeah. before we got started. So, so let's talk about your presidency. Um, maybe you can explain to, to lawyers like me who are a bit ambivalent when it comes to law associations, maybe speak to us on, on why they're important and talk to us about the work that you do. So, I mean, in very short, my, my job is to represent the lawyer members who are part of our association and to further their interests, which includes, you know, providing kind of fluffy member benefits like, you know, gym discounts and um, things like that. But then much more important things like ensuring they have access to good uh, CPD and um, uh, online resources, providing a law library um, with both, you know, hard copy and obviously um, uh, internet based research databases, which particularly in a smaller community like like Kingston and the surrounding the Frontenac area is important because you still have a lot of sole practitioners and people who are, um, you know, old school, jack of all trades, you know, real right. litigators and solicitors who can do anything that comes through their door and they don't have their own libraries. Um, so at a you know, the next step from that is if we do a good job as an association advocating for our lawyer members and making sure they have access to those resources, the support they need, putting on good events, you know, networking, things of that nature, obviously that's going to have a good um, impact on their ability to serve their own clients. Um, so it's, it really is a public good. Take it even one step further. Uh, so the Frontenac Law Association is um, one of the many associations in the province, all of whom are part of what used to be called CADELPA, the County and District Law something associations uh, now called FOLA, Federation of Law Associations of Ontario. Um, and FOLA is a really, really important group in the province that does, um, they do intervener status, they lobby the government um, 
to make sure that appropriate views are heard when legislative changes are made. Uh, you know, they, they are a, a major player, I would say, in, in legal policy, um, and they do absolutely fantastic work. Uh, you know, I think the, and, and even one step further at a much more kind of um, theoretical or feel-good phase, if I have to decide to be part of something or not, I've never been a huge joiner. I wasn't part of clubs in high school and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, collegiality in the profession and having um, those close relationships, particularly with how busy we get, is just super important. I find that really interesting. And so I know you as a, as a very good leader through Mundy, right. Mundy Avocat, which is fashioned as the World Cup of Soccer for Lawyers. I think that's a bit, it's a lot there. I tell people that and they look at me and they're like, uh, are you sure? <laughs> um, but uh, I, was, I had the opportunity to take part with that team uh, two years and, and you were organizing it and you've been organizing it for quite some time. But the thing about Monday is whenever I tell somebody about it, they're they're like, first of all, they're like, do you have to be a lawyer? Like, how do I sign up? Like, everybody's just so excited. And so just for anybody that's not familiar with Monday and what it is, can you please explain to the listeners? Because it's such a cool program. Yeah. So I I was standing in my my uh, mentor's office, Ted Bergeron, and he was opening up his mail and we're just talking and there's this pamphlet in there for the Mundi Avocat World Cup for lawyers. And first we thought it was, you know, made up spam mail, of, of course, but, you know, they'd, they'd mailed it from France and the postage was on there and it, you know, cost a whole bunch of dollars to send it over or whatever. And so we, we read through it and Ted uh, leaned across the table and said, you know, if you if you want to go to this, put together a team and, you know, and we'll do it. And I, I think my chair was spinning because I ran out the door so fast uh, thinking this is an awesome opportunity. And I mean, what it is, is it's um, so my understanding is this uh, lawyer from Marseille, uh, uh, Vincent Pinatel, started this tournament for local lawyers back in the 80s that um, then grew into this worldwide thing. Uh, it's been going on since the early 80s, to my understanding. And when we went to Spain, for example, uh, there were several thousand lawyers from something like 40 or 50 countries competing in this. And it's all lawyers and judges and other legal professionals from all over the world who put together teams. Um, and I mean, soccer, or as everyone else calls it, football is like a natural thing for that because it's the most international game there is. It's a universal language. So we use it as a, uh, you know, a networking and marketing uh, and a leisure activity. It's So we've been to Spain twice, Argentina, Chile, uh, Panama. Next year is uh, Morocco. Yeah, it's fantastic. And so Warren, I know you've you've gone on this trip for a number of years. You've talked about the passion that that's had about football overseas. Can you share a story that encapsulates some of that uh, passion that you've seen firsthand? Well, so I remember um, the first time we signed up, they, um, you know, they, they you register, you have to tell, you have to give your uh, team members and uh, identification, all these sorts of things. And they, they were very, very serious about the ID that you need. And um, they gave me a rule book that they sent me at the same time. And this rule book was as thick as you would think a rule book would be for a soccer tournament where only lawyers can be involved. Like they have covered everything to a T. And I couldn't really figure out why. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, some of these teams take 
uh, soccer so seriously that they were forging identity documents to get professional soccer players into the tournament who aren't actually lawyers. <laughs> um, and and there was a you know an expose done by one group of players who'd lost a game to another group of players from another country where they did their own independent research to prove that some of the players weren't actually lawyers. I think I read that it, it was, it yeah, was there published was, in an Instagram post. Or that's right. It like was, that. it was, there was a press release after about it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a passionate uh, example there in kind of the negative sense. Um, you know, one of the coolest experiences, this is the one that always comes into my mind, um, was the first time we went on the trip. We went to Santiago, Chile in 2015, and we stayed in this fantastic hotel. Santiago is a beautiful city um, uh, that kind of sits with the Andes Mountains way in the background on, on a clear day. And we're on the top of this hotel. There's a hot tub on the roof. Um, we're relaxing after a game, and, I, and I'm in the hot tub with a team of senior judges from Argentina, um, and uh, they're passing around the the yerba mate uh, gourd that the, they favor, and are telling me the stories about their lives in Argentina, um, which in their legal lives requires them to have uh, personal bodyguards everywhere they go. Um, and just hearing these stories, you know, interacting with what it's like to be like, what's it like to be a government lawyer in Mongolia? I remember speaking with a guy about that. Like you just get these perspectives, uh, you know, my view of the legal profession, even as a president of a law association or whatever, is fairly narrow compared to what it can mean internationally. So like the soccer is fantastic. The travel is great. But then the stories you hear are, are amazing, too. And Warren, I know that you're a professor. I mentioned earlier that you're a professor at Queens University, the yeah. law school. I wanted to ask you, and you, you, you're, you teach ADR, so Alternative Dispute Resolution, correct? I've taught it twice. I'm, I'm teaching different courses at this point. What, what are some of the best questions you've received from students? It's, it's hard to, to pin down a... So I'll tell you my approach to teaching, and maybe this will help. I, I, can't, I can't think of any, you know, the, the most brilliant question I've received. I mean, Queens is a, is a good school, right? So this, the caliber of student you get is is excellent. But I think part of what's wrong with our education system in general, and particularly the legal education system, is that the, the way we screen for applicants is by academic aptitude. And academic aptitude does not fulfill the purpose that lawyers will fulfill once they practice, right? Which their job is to serve justice and to serve clients and to operate in what is effectively the customer service industry. I tell all of my students first day of class, you are a super fancy Starbucks barista. If someone comes into your Starbucks and asks you for a cheeseburger, you better tell them you can't do it, right? You don't, you're in the customer service industry. Don't make false promises. And so in that vein of trying to take the students out of this super academic mold that uh, appropriately most professors have. They're academics. That's how they got into their positions. I try and take a much more practical approach. And part of that is giving them a wider lens for what it will mean to actually practice. Like, how can you best serve your client? Um, and so once students kind of for those that that seems to resonate with, they get their head around the idea that there is rarely an objective best step for a client. It is almost always subjective. Um, you start to get a lot of really interesting questions from, from these students who are used to being 
listened to because of their intelligence, but they realize that I want to listen to them because of their sensitivity to nuance or to personal needs and things like that. And so they start thinking about the person behind the law, um, which I think is really cool because they don't do that in their other classes. So as to one specific question, I, I can't say I, I, I can think of one, but um, but I like that kind of aha moment when they realize, oh, yeah, this is I'm going to get out of this classroom one day and I'm going to be helping real people or real organizations with real problems. Uh, absolutely. A big part of what we do as lawyers is we advise clients. And in doing that, that involves often legal research. So there's an academic piece, but invariably there is a practical piece. I represent a lot of businesses. Um, you, you represent a lot of individuals. I mean, you need to tailor your advice strategically to your client or else it's it's absolutely useless. And you know, obviously in law school, we get the academic side and we just have to pick up the practical strategic side. And ideally you, do, you pick it up through articling, but you know, it, it's not taught in law school. Yeah. Yeah. Warren, I wanted to ask you about your, your personal injury practice. So I, I had a cup of a cup of tea, a cup of coffee in personal injury. I, I did a quite a bit of insurance defense when I was articling and a very little bit when I came out as a new call on the plaintiff side. And I always considered personal injury to be especially uh, adversarial between counsel. One, is that your perspective as someone who's been in the field for several years? Do you find it to be particularly adversarial? And two, how do you deal or what's your strategy with respect to getting results for your clients, but also dealing with counsel and, and in your case, insurance defense counsel who, who might be very, very tough, very rigid? Um, so my general experience is no, I don't find it adversarial if, if it's meant in the sense that people are, you know, abrasive or cantankerous or, or something of that nature. Uh, is it hard fought? Absolutely. Um, one line that defense counsel use that I really like, not because I agree with it, but I think it encapsulates kind of the process is um, I heard a defense counsel say this at a mediation and I've heard it in closing argument at trial that you know, you're here, the jury, to give, um, you know, a fair result for the for the plaintiff, but it needs to be fair for all parties, not just for the plaintiff, but also for the defendant. Um, and, you know, and they really, I mean, an insurer will take that position very, uh, very seriously. Um, and while uh, from a moral standpoint, I think if you asked basically anybody on the street, the things should, should if it was going to be more fair for an individual or for an insurance company, most people would say the individual, but on a systemic level, I, I don't know. So uh, counsel generally, like we have extremely professional relationships with everybody we deal with, whether I get along with them personally or not. Some people, and I talk to my kids about this a lot, even though they're quite young, some people, lawyers, not lawyers, whoever, have a really hard time disagreeing with people pleasantly. That's huge. Um, I don't. I can disagree with people very strongly, even thinking not just do I see it differently, but I can't believe you see it your way. Like it's ridiculous. And I still don't get upset about it. Um, people who don't have that skill, I think should not 
practice litigation whatsoever, let alone personal injury. Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, it makes my job unpleasant on the the rare days when I have to deal with lawyers that are unable to be pleasant. But it is rare, thankfully. I wish more people took that perspective when it came to politics as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? We can disagree, but we don't. The the other side doesn't have to be a terrible person in the process of that disagreement. Yeah. It can just be a disagreement on ideas. But. Absolutely. And I, and I think that part of and it, it I mean, I'm n- not a geneticist, <laughs> but I think that there may be some evolution at play there that there is some people have an inability to fight hard without activating their animal brain, you know, their reptilian centers. And like, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. I don't need to get angry and feel like, like I'm so, you know, warm that I literally need to like take my, I've seen people have to take their sport jackets off in discoveries because they they can't make their, you know, questions aggressive enough. Otherwise, like I'm not on that level. Yeah. The sad thing is that I think every single litigator could, could offer several examples of that. Right. What you just, which is just sad. So one of the things, and honestly, the people that I have the hardest time with usually in terms of situations of aggression is not opposing counsel. It's clients who are hiring a lawyer, usually for the first time, who've watched a lot of TV and who say that they want a pit bull in their corner or something like that. And and I, I say the same thing to all of them. I say, if you want a pit bull in your corner, you have got the wrong lawyer. Yeah. Um, because I will fight for you really, really hard as a gentleman. Right. I do not. I do not behave like a pit bull. I don't yell at people. Um, I, I I will craft the most creative legal argument possible and advocate it, you know, persuasively as a gentleman. That's interesting. Obviously, I've heard the pit bull analogy as well, and I just think it's so terrible. I mean, when I think of a pit bull, at least in the sense that they're referring to, most pit bulls are actually harmless, but. The pit bull they're talking about is not harmless. It's aggressive. It's biting at you, like without any reason, without any discernment on whether it should bite you or not. (laughs) Totally irrational. Right. It's just an irrational outward aggression. And I get it because litigation at its heart for clients is emotional. I understand that. I don't want a pit bull. Like, give me one of those smart dogs. Like I, I know. A beagle or a golden retriever. <laughs> Maybe a golden retriever is a little too gentle. but They're kind of dopey. Yeah. There's got to be like some discernment on when are we going to bark? When are we going to bite? When are we going to sip at? You know? Yeah, play dead. When are we going <laughs> to play dead? <laughs> and sometimes uh, you got to roll over. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you do too. Yeah. Um, and so one thing I, I, I really like about your firm is I had the opportunity to meet, I think, every lawyer at your firm. And and I'm not saying this just because you guys have paid twice for me to play soccer overseas, <laughs> um, but I, I'm really impressed. You know, obviously, I've met a lot of lawyers and a lot of lawyers at different law firms. There really seems to be like a true unity within the lawyers at your firm. I mean, how do you guys achieve that? Um so our, our firm, first and foremost, is a, is a group of uh, family-minded people. Um, between the five partners, we have 17 kids. Wow. Um, so that, that truly is a family. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, um, 
I wouldn't say I know all of my partner's kids really well, um, but I care deeply for them. And they, I know that if I ever needed anything, they would, they would be there in a second, whether for my wife and they've done this in the past or for my kids. And uh, so that's, that's, I think, Part of where the unity comes from is just that, you know, being like-minded individuals that we we enjoy working for our clients. We only do one type of law, personal injury, medical malpractice, only for plaintiffs. So we're, we're unified in our practice. We're unified in our focus, which is on family. Um, we have a lot of a lot of staff like we've got um, five partners. Uh, two associates and over 30 staff. Um, wow. The, you know, and the, again, the focus is still on family. You know, we do a, a Christmas party with a, with a Santa for the kids of, of, um, of anybody who's related to the firm, um, you know, parties for all the holidays. The staff are treated, um, you know, I've worked, I worked a lot of other places, not just legally. I was in restaurant retail management before becoming a lawyer. We treat everyone really, really well. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a philosophy that permeates kind of the way we do everything. Yeah. It's apparent. So I, I've met all of your lawyers and it just seemed like you guys really enjoyed being around each other, (laughs) which, uh, which I thought was great and refreshing. And I know we spoke just a few moments ago about the pit bull analogy. I wanted to ask you about another negative stereotype of lawyers in particular, personal injury lawyers. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase ambulance chasers, right? How do you respond to that? And I think there's a number of ways to respond, but just this idea that uh, personal injury lawyers, um, I mean, I I think when I hear ambulance chaser, I think this is somebody that that doesn't care about the client, only cares about money. I mean, how do you respond to that? Have you heard that? You know, what are your reflections? Yeah, it's a... um it's absolutely something I've heard. And I, I think that there may be circumstances, although they're rare, where it is a um, an apt but kind of uncouth or unkind uh, accusation or name calling, uh, even when it is deserved. Uh, I'm not I'm not of a uh, ilk that really enjoys name calling anytime. Um, most of the, the good phrases I have are from my mentor, Ted, Ted Bergeron and Ted. Ted says several things that that come to mind. One is, um, you know, that we don't engage in beauty contests. And and what he means by that is that if you feel that you are competing for a client or you have to chase a client in order to make them bring their file to you, that's not something that we will engage in. We let our work stand on its own two feet. People can, um, there's a firm, I don't know who they are, but they say, you know, the proof is in the precedence. Um, and and I think that's a great slogan. I wish we'd thought of it because we could use it too, right? We're not we're not settlement lawyers, we're trial lawyers. Like we do, we go to trial and, and uh, most of the time we're successful, thankfully. Yeah. And um, if I can just interject, so much so that in your office, you guys have a mock courtroom to help prepare your clients for trial am i allowed to say that yeah is that a secret no it's not a secret yeah we've got um we have a mock courtroom in in the office wired for sight and sound and we hire juries from the public we do jury studies regularly um every client whether it's a you know a forty thousand dollar claim or a four million dollar claim gets the same treatment meaning that if it gets past a pre-trial we will run a jury study on it to make sure that we are um ready to do the best job possible when it goes to trial um so yeah so we don't we don't 
we don't engage in in beauty contests. We don't we don't chase after files. Um, we um, and part of that goes back to what I said about being in the customer service industry. That if you have to chase after a client, that's probably not someone that you're going to have a sustainable relationship with anyway. You know, my average short file is two to three years, and you know, many are five or six years. And it's not that we need to be best friends, but we do need to have a relationship that's going to be able to go the distance. Um, and so the, I mean, the other parts of that, um, you know, phrase ambulance chaser, I think to me brings to mind some of the, um, negative attention that has come on the personal injury practice because of a few bad apples, um, mainly in a few big cities, uh, that, you know, engage in, uh, unfair billing practices, which obviously those people should just lose their licenses. Can you provide an example of what that would look like? Yeah. So like, I mean, it's called a, a costs plus agreement, which is in violation of the solicitors act. So where you agree with a client that I'm going to have a contingency fee. So I'll take 25% of your settlement plus when the insurer contributes uh, to your costs at the end, uh, I'm going to take those as well. You can't have a cost plus agreement. And a lot of firms, uh, sorry, a lot of firms that got in trouble for billing practices, that's what they were doing. Gotcha. Um, which is obviously, I mean, that's the client's money. It's an either or situation, yeah, not both. You're, you're taking both hands and both pots. There. That's right. Costs on costs. Not, right. not okay. Um, and I mean, thankfully, that stuff is rare. But I one of the frustrations is that, you know, when so, I mean, another thing that I think has the negative stereotype with um, ambulance chasing is the um, the advertising practices that are, um, they just bring the reputation of lawyers into disrepute, really corny stuff. I mean, my last name's White Knight. If I, I was laughing with someone the other day when I was at the annual Frontenac Law Association conference, um, they said that if I had been a personal injury lawyer in the U.S., I could have a billboard where I was like a um, a centaur, you know, half half horse, half man. Right. Um, and if I was in the U.S., maybe I could. Yeah, and um, there, you'd have to fit an eagle in there somehow. Absolutely. Right. Um, but there's like for good reason, you know, you can't run those ads in Canada. Yeah. Um, but there are other people, uh, you know, there were the ads that were run in the um, at the Raptors games over the urinals uh, for a personal injury lawyer that said, um, you know, is referring to settlement, but it said size does matter. Um, you know, that's the sort of stuff that brings the reputation into disrepute. So, you know, we we let our work stand for itself. We get the bulk of our work through referrals because other uh, lawyers trust us with, with the work. Which is the highest compliment. I, I think so. I mean, I don't I don't shop my referrals around. I send them to people who I know are going to do a good job because that's going to reflect on my reputation. Yeah. And you talk about advertisement, and I think about Bergeron Clifford. I think about your your ads, where I, I believe it just says only personal injury. Yeah. Right. I think it's just, and it's just the simplicity. It's there's not a lot there. It's just, hey, this is what we do. This is all we do. We're focused on this, and I think that goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. But Warren, I appreciate you taking some time out, and hopefully, we can have another conversation. Looking forward to it. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe on iTunes podcast, and feel free to share and spread the word.